Hey folks, welcome back to the High Performance Human Podcast. I'm your host, Simon Ward, and it's my goal to help you upgrade your human performance by guiding you towards improved sleep, nutrition, fitness, mobility, and stress management. If you can work on just one of those, then you'll be on the pathway to living longer, living healthier, and of course, improving your athletic performance. If you're interested in joining me on this journey, please check out my SWAT Inner Circle, where you can enjoy a 30-day trial period for just £1. Please email beth at thetriathloncoach.com or look for the link in the show notes below. Now, if you work out regularly, and as a listener to this podcast, I would assume that you probably do, then there's a fair chance that you've been injured at some stage. Call it an occupational hazard for athletes, if you like. Injuries are physical, the pain is real, and the effects of the injury are often visible. But recovery from injury isn't just a physical act. One might argue that there is a mental health aspect to getting injured. I know that from some of my most serious injuries, I've felt a sense of loss and not being able to train, and even grief if it meant having to withdraw from events, which is why I'm delighted to be speaking with today's guest, Dr. David Meyer. Dr. Meyer is a sports performance physical therapist who served as a rehab and medical coordinator for the St. Louis Cardinals in Major League Baseball, where he discovered a new approach to sports rehab that utilizes psychology along with mental skills and strategies. This inspired David to author his recently published book, Injured to Elite, a guide to empowering yourself to transform your life after injury. Alongside his book, Injured to Elite, he also hosts a podcast and David's now fostered a community made up of developing sports professionals and athletes that mainly identify with being an underdog in order to change the paradigm of sports performance and healthcare towards growth outside of just the physical domain. If you want to use all of the tools at your disposal, not if, but when you get injured, you'll love this conversation as we chat about why injury is emotional as well as physical, thought viruses and thought vaccines and why you need to replace one with the other, having a growth mindset and being an open mind skeptic, experimental curiosity, self-determination theory and its role in injury rehab and five steps to having a positive mindset during your injury rehab. So let's crack on with today's guest. Welcome to the show, David Meyer. Nice to be here with you, Simon. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm jealous that you're across the pond. I keep on talking about how much I want to be there. So uh, it's nice to be here. Well, actually. the grass is always greener, as they say. <laughs> yeah, 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 it might be. It might be. I haven't been there yet, so I don't know. Well, you're in New York, and uh, I've always enjoyed my times in New York. So maybe, maybe we can do a house swap. I'd love to. I don't own a house though, so you know, maybe we can uh, just put the rental up, and uh, I'll try and get away with that. But <laughs> cool. Well, David, you reached out to me. You've got a book out now. Uh, it's called Injured to Elite, I believe. So That's we're going to talk about that a little later. But I'm interested in your your journey to this point, how you got to the point of writing a book. So I think that's something a lot of people have on their bucket list, me included. And uh, we were just talking about that pre-show. I, I also, um, th- there are differences in terminology as well between the US market and the UK. So I know you talk about being a PT. I was a PT, but in, in the UK, that would most people would understand that as a personal trainer. Yeah. Um, we I know that you have athletic trainers, you have conditioners, and you have 
therapists. Mm-hmm. And so those all have a different meaning over here. Cause I, I work, you worked in baseball. I worked in cricket, which is like baseball on Valium. <laughs> and, uh, um, so I worked as a fitness conditioner um, for Yorkshire Cricket Club, which would be like the Mets or the... Uh, um, it's the- funny, Simon. I, I was watching a little bit of cricket through the pandemic and I was saying to myself, I don't really know what the heck is going on, but it's a lot more exciting to watch than baseball. Well, it depends which game you were watching. I mean, if you watch, we have a, there's a five-day version, which is the test match. And if you watch uh, the Ashes between England and Australia, which is historical, um, competition going back over a hundred years. Uh, that can it's get been quite going on for a hundred years. Probably that same game. Yeah. What I watched. <laughs> well, they've got they've they've they seem to get them wrapped up in four days now. But but recently, um, in the last few years, they've introduced this format called Twenty Twenty, which is like watching cricket on speed. I mean, literally, mm. the players run into bat. They they they're hitting the ball out the park from the first off. Um, yeah, that's, use that that's, phrase too, out the park. I like oh, that. Oh, they do. And then the players, um, they do hit it out the park. Some of them, they're just, yeah, awesome. But that, that, that game's changed quite a bit since the days when I was involved. Um, yeah, and baseball and cricket, uh, you know, the, the, the arm action in some ways can be, can be looked at as similar. But uh, from a sports standpoint, it's, uh, it, it seems quite different. I, I'd love to learn more about it. Maybe when I head over to England. Well, I, I don't know, actually. I mean, there are some similarities. You've got cricket players who sit. They have to sit in the dugout or in the changing room. And so you warm them up before the game. But that whole thing that we as endurance athletes know as warm-up is something you do immediately prior to starting right. your event. Whereas if you're playing cricket or baseball, you can warm up and then you can go and sit down inside for, a, for, for an hour true. or so, maybe. And then you've got to come straight out into the action and you can go from naught to 100 in two seconds. So conditioning players to... Um, to be mobile and to be re- in, the, in the ready state, if you like, is, is a completely different skill, isn't it, in those two games? Let's just say you don't see or hear too many pro ball players running marathons in the offseason or in retirement. There's a reason why the golf course becomes one of their uh, major destinations. So they're, they're, it's interesting. The my actual interest in talking to people about different sports. A lot of times I, I like learning more about the, uh, the sports I know less about like, you know, marathon runner. I actually started running later in my, in my life. So mm-hmm. and baseball is quite repetitive sport. I guess r- running is quite repetitive. Cricket's quite repetitive, but there's something really different when the scenery is changing as you're mm-hmm. going through the event versus the, you know, the same scenery with a team sport, at least in football you're, or American football, you're moving down something. Mm. <laughs> in baseball, it's just the same diamond, pretty much the fence is a little further in or out. So if you can't tell, I, I burnt out a little bit on the baseball front. <laughs> well, cricket's the same. You know, you run up and down the wicket, which is 20, 20 yards, and uh, you've, you, you've enclosed by the stadium. But I, I used to have quite heated debates with, with people who said, well, what do they need a fitness conditioner for cricket for? They're all fat and overweight. And I'm like, okay, so, you know, you've got a West Indian cricketer bowling a ball at you from 20 meters away at hundred miles an hour. And there's this little round thing that's the same size as a baseball. And if you, you've got to react and sort of almost be ready to hit it before he's bowled it. So you don't, you, you're just anticipating. So you're looking at what his body shape is and how he's holding the ball and, um, and then there's a huge amount of hand-eye coordination. And then for having been off balance, you've then got to sprint one way at speed and turn at speed and come back. And there's a whole degree of athleticism in there that people just don't pick up on. 
And let me ask you this. In cricket, do they throw the ball intentionally at, at a hitter ever or, or a batter or whatever they call um, baseball? Well, they're, they're trying to get, they're trying to hit the wickets. So those are the three stumps that are vertical behind the bat that stood slightly behind the batsman. Um, there was a famous tour. You can read about this. It was called the Bodyline Tour when England went to tour Australia and there'd been a little bit of um, friction between them and the English uh, captain, Doug, I think it was Douglas Jardine, decided that they were going to deliberately bowl to hit the to hit the players and it, and it got quite nasty. So that, um, I think you can read a book on that. Um, yeah, the, the lang- even though it's English, the language, wow, you call it, we call it pitch, you call it bowl. If we call it phys- physical therapy, you call it physiotherapy. It is interesting language, isn't it? Yeah. Um, the similarities yet different the a lot of a lot of differences so let, let's talk about how you got into that side of the sport then um were you were you interested in sport as a as a as a young boy at school you know did you want to be a pro did you want to be a pro athlete or did you always have this idea of fixing people was more interesting you know i've learned this more and more recently humans are very boring overall we're very similar we have very similar dreams and we're affected by things very similarly so yeah i was tradition the traditional physical sports physical therapist that grew up as an athlete and most of us that go into well you're you're a personal trainer or or a coach and the only reason we don't we don't consider PTs as personal trainers is because of the laws and that gets in the way. But who I really the titles I think are crazy. But I think a lot of us that go into it at one point in our career we weren't good enough to get to the next level. So then we <laughs> yeah. we intelligently think about well, hmm, practically what what can I do to get there? So I think it was a combination of me being a shorter athlete growing up, not as physically. Um, powerful, especially when I was super young, short-wise, really, height-wise, and also growing up with a father that was a diehard sports fan. And that was probably even more impactful on me than my own playing of the sports. It was my way of connecting with my father. My father suffered from kidney disease, had two transplants, eventually died due to lung cancer uh, from the therapies he had to take to suppress his immune response from the second transplant. But for me, I think um, my, my infatuation with working there really grew even deeper once I lost my father and I wanted to, it was my way of kind of feeling connected to him in his passing. So it was one of those things that I, we talked about goal setting before a little bit in our, 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 theories on that now we're both coaches as well with others so i think for me it was almost like that thing i had to do if i didn't do it i didn't feel whole and looking back on it i wouldn't change it but going forward with some of the things i do i i guess i have a little bit different of a perspective but uh it it was a very serious thing for me to work at that point work in that level and i wasn't really willing to take no for an answer. And I was very fortunate enough too, because I got the job with the Cardinals only three years into being a physical therapist, my third, my third or three and a half years into being a PT, physio, whatever. Do you, uh, cause I, when I started working as a personal trainer, I wrote down a series of goals. I, I found the piece of paper recently actually. And, uh, I'd written down that within five years of starting my business. So that was in 19, um, 1993, 94, I wanted to be working with a first class club. So first class would be 
in the top tier of that particular sport. So uh, we we have uh, at that point we had three major professional sports in the United Kingdom: um, soccer, football, as we call it here, cricket, and rugby league, which is mostly a, a sport that's played in the north. Um, rugby union is the next one now. Um, that's become professional, but probably the the turn of the 21st century so um, I had three opportunities uh, in, in Leeds we had a big club then Leeds United who are back in the Premier League now um, we had Yorkshire Cricket Club and then we had Leeds Rhinos but within a probably a 20 mile radius of me there was um, a dozen other rugby league clubs to, to choose from and so you know not, not much choice and I wrote down that I wanted to work for one of those clubs and then I set about getting hold of that job and then I was how long listening. did it take you? To, uh, uh, it happened. I can't remember exactly how long it was, but it happened um, within within the five years. Yeah, but, yeah. but mostly because I hustled. I wrote letters. I wrote. I wrote a letter to every single rugby league club. I wrote a letter to Yorkshire Cricket. I wrote a letter to Leeds United, um, and and I got something back from a, a coach, a second tier rugby league club, who said he wanted somebody to help and couldn't really pay me much. And I thought, well, you know, you meet people. If they get a new job, they take you with them. Um, you never know once you've got the door, once you've got your foot in the door, you never know really what's going to happen once you get inside the room. So just get in the room and then work it out from there. Absolutely. I always say just be one of the last ones in the room and just keep staying in those rooms. Yeah. But it's interesting. I mean, the youngins now, the early career professionals, I can't imagine really if I was in the position now. Even a, so, I graduated from NYU Physical Therapy in 2012, and we're going on a decade now for me since I graduated. It is so much more competitive than it even was. So, when I was graduating, there weren't as many jobs in pro sports as PTs for PTs, but at the same time, they were still growing a receptiveness to having more of a performance staff. Mm-hmm. But I can't imagine now if I was graduating. And I wanted to work in pro baseball. Like the year I lost my father, I vowed to my family, hey, I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going to work. It was for the Mets, by the way. That was the dream. <laughs> and the, the Mets beat the, the loss to the St. Louis Cardinals in the playoffs the year my father passed away. And it's funny, the Cardinals out of all teams hired me uh, about nine years after that. But I think if I was coming into it now, I don't know if I would have gotten such dumb luck. And I don't, I don't know if I'd call it dumb luck because I was doing a sports residency and I, I was really tunnel vision, very much tunnel vision. But now I coach and mentor a lot of students and they're all asking me, Dave, how do I do it? What did you do? And of course, now I'm more on the, more on the personal development side. Sometimes I just think about it. And I'm like, wow, I'm really grateful. Mm. I'm really grateful. I think you've got to, uh, you've just got to hustle, haven't you? You know, you, you've got to take every opportunity. You've got to be prepared to work for nothing to start with and um, get the experience. You've got to take opportunities. And if they don't work out, well, you can still chalk that down to a bit of experience, can't you? You know, in trusting people's, um, trusting people's promises. And uh, the thing as well that I learned from being in a team sport is you could be doing a great job, but if the coach loses their job, often you go as well because, um, because generally they clear out the whole of the coaching oh, staff. And so, yeah. off, you know, you, you can sometimes be the victim of a, a political decision oh. um, through no fault of your own. And, and you need to be, I think it's important to be quite resilient with that because if you aren't, you can start thinking, well, what did I do wrong? And really you did nothing wrong. I was, uh, I'll, um, 
I like being vulnerable on podcasts. I, my third year, so I was brought in, in professional baseball. We work on contracts, just like a player, actually, you know, mm-hmm. a little different. You don't get a five year, hundred million dollar deal as easily, at least. I don't, maybe if you have the British accent, I think your salary <laughs> might go up, but, um, <laughs> You, it, it, we work on contracts. So I was brought in my first year, one-year contract. And then I don't know how I was so fortunate for this, but I negotiated a two-year contract with the general manager of the St. Louis Cardinals, the top dog, who's now the president, John Moseliak. And Mo was always good to me. I think Mo liked to feel connected to all arms of the organization. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he very much was with me. And he gave me a really nice opportunity to stay there for two years. After the deal went through, a month later, to your point, just what you were sharing, the head athletic trainer resigned. And there was a shift in the medical staff. And they brought in a new director of performance, actually, the first director of performance. By the way, the Cardinals were one of the first teams to really have a director of performance. This was back in 2015. We're not talking about a long time ago. Mm. So this is, you know, we all know Dr. Mark Gillet, I believe his name is pronounced in, in Europe. With the, I think it was the premiership where he wrote a paper on the high performance model, I believe. Right. I, I don't know. I think his last name was Gillet. And so back in 2015, when I was doing this two-year contract, performance teams and departments were expanding. Like they were just for the first time growing. and so. They hired Robert Butler to, to oversee strength and conditioning, rehab, medical, which includes doing the physicals, doing, making sure that the players are just working through whatever comes up, illness. And it was all under this one roof, strength and conditioning as well. Mm. And I didn't really, I didn't know who they brought in. I didn't know him well, and I didn't know the philosophies. And he, Robert Butler was very... Uh, specific in in his beliefs with with certain modalities, and that was a little shell shocking for me because I yeah. was just I was this young physical therapist just getting my bearings, and I felt like wherever I went, they were putting onto this this philosophy that I must mm-hmm. wear as this clothing, and it just it, it kind of I started to burn out after my first year of the second contract, and by the end of my my three years there, I wasn't brought back for another year, and I think it was really because. We knew. We just knew that we we were on. We were just in diff, different wavelengths, and it, it wasn't anything related to performance. It was just more so related to. I I think I wanted to not assume more responsibility, but I wanted to be able to creatively think and and do things as I saw fit, and that seemed to be just not not how I felt. I guess, and so that was heartbreaking for me. Go and it's di- it's difficult, isn't it, when you've when you've set your mind on that goal and then you reach that goal to then have to let go of it. There's a there's a knock to your ego, isn't there? Because you you're like, well, I want to stay in this, but if it's if it's causing you sleepless nights and it's causing you to be burnt out and you're not enjoying it when you go there, at some point you realise you're going to have to cut the ties. Well, you know, you're looking. You may I appreciate what you said about the microphone and you like my setup. I'll tell you right now, the reason you're looking at this Heil PR40 microphone that I probably didn't need to get my first few years of podcasting was for one reason. I felt that I didn't have a voice. 
early in my career. Hmm. And so when I went through this whole thing of leaving the Cardinals, went out to LA, I met my fiance, thank God. She was a nice segue out there. But I I knew that I wanted to sharpen my voice and I wanted to be able to be heard Mm -hmm. for whatever my beliefs were. And for me, I identified the mental side being really lackluster in the rehab setting specifically, not by any fault or negligence, but just simply we weren't giving it enough attention in the medical model. And I knew at that point that having some larger platform was going to be better for me than simply working for a team or getting the paycheck. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. The, the, and I agree with that. Sometimes you, you realize that if you want to do the things you want to do in life, you have to start creating your own agenda rather than working to everybody else's. And uh, we, we talked about information marketing and this whole positioning thing. It's about creating putting yourself up there as the trusted authority, isn't it? It's like there is so much noise out there in the fitness world, in nutrition, in rehab. Everybody thinks they understand how to recover from or help people recover from injuries because they've got their own, they've got over their own, you know, they've had, they've had a meniscus repair. And so they now know how to help everybody else recover from meniscus repair, even if they know nothing about their psychology, their, their physiology, their history, anything. And, um, but, but because, because social media is so prevalent yes. you you can post stuff on there and if you've if you've got lots of influence because you've got a six pack or you've got blonde hair or you look good in a bathing suit um people start to trust you and and often there's no basis for that trust but but then it's really difficult for the people who do know what they're talking about and have that credibility to make themselves um heard above that noise yeah there's something called information literacy that I learned about when I was writing my book that my editor Oleg Kagan, who's a librarian, taught me about and I never knew it as that phrase for me. I learned it to be empirical data or evidence based practice we call it in in physical therapy uh-huh. physio evidence based practice what the research says or at least what your anecdotal experience is. But Oleg was explaining to me, well, what you're trying to put your finger on with educating people to empower themselves after injury with my book, the the subtitle is A Guide to Empowering Yourself to Transform Your Life After Injury, is this whole idea about information literacy. So no longer are you just simply looking at the latest and greatest Instagram post based on who that is right? There's something to be said about that. It's entertaining. It's engaging. It's (laughs) social psychology. We need to up our game in terms of educating people how to, because there's really a disconnect, right? You have to be at Cambridge or NYU to learn how to evaluate information. Well, that's not right because that creates a disparity of information and we fed, we created the system. So I think what separates my beliefs from many is that I think we're responsible in the healthcare system for the problem we have. I think that we created a monster. One of the monsters is on the academic side where we created a disparity of information. And you said, well, you need to be paying and getting student loans and doing it well, at least here in the States to, to get that information. And then on the other side, we have this amazing healthcare system that sells people on the idea that, well, I'm going to get rid of your knee pain. I'm going to get rid of your meniscus. I'm going to let you go run your marathon and we'll keep fixing your pain. Just come back to the mechanic. And both of these things have created really a lot of trouble for a lot of people, really have created a lot of disenchanting ideas and, and beliefs that 
my goal now is is partly to unravel and help people choose a different path where it's a little more based on self-empowerment and also can carry over into other parts of your life. I think you and I really kind of connect on this whole idea of not just being in the physical domain. I've, I've spoken to quite a few people recently and we, we talk, um, the conversations have, have sort of come around to Eastern medicine versus Western medicine. And I, I've got quite a few friends and clients who um, are consultants and surgeons. And so, I, you know, and I've got a great deal of respect for them and they're very credible in their industries. And when I chat with those guys, they are very open-minded, but I've equally, I've spoken to some people who they dismiss, they dismiss homeopathy, right? I don't know enough about it to know whether it works or not, but I do know that if somebody is using some methodology that they feel works for them and in their mind, they think it's working, then so there's, there's got to be something going on there. I mean, there's, there's, there is some, there is some medical research, which is quite credible about sham surgeries and about convincing people that, um, they've, I think there was a minute, there was a study on meniscus surgery, wasn't there, where they even convinced people that the the little incisions they'd had were the surgery and they gave them the, um, the the bandages afterwards. And these people are like, yeah, I feel great now after my surgery and they'd had nothing done. So, there is a, a huge amount in there about the mind. Um, the Eastern medicine tends to be a lot more into that side of things than it is in sort of like a pill for every ill and a, a sort of surgery for every symptom. Um, and and I've, I've li- listened to some podcasts where they're talking, uh, you know, some people are now doing this functional medicine where they're trying to blend the Eastern philosophy with the Western philosophy and trying to get the best of both worlds. So where, where are you on that sort of spectrum? I don't know why we call it Eastern and Western medicine still or medicine in 2021. So first off, we probably should just like, just call it phenomenon and explained phenomenon, which really explains even spirituality. It's just unexplained phenomenon. Mm. So for me, where I stand is I, I am not an empiricist. I'm more of a, I'm, I, I, I do not I don't only believe in things that I can prove. I actually believe in things that I can believe in. And I take that approach into science as well. But from a Western, quote unquote, Western approach in philosophy, there's actually three pillars of evidence-based practice. This is something I write about in my book, teaching the, the everyday person that's not a medical practitioner what it is and what the science even is. And guess what? There's three pillars to evidence-based practice. And those three pillars are the empirical data, so the research itself, the clinicians or the professional's experience. So if you have a lot of success with high-intensity interval training and it works well for your clients, then guess what? There's data behind, there's evidence behind it. The third pillar is the client, the patient, the athlete's own experiences. They grew up liking warm blankets, so they like warm hot packs on their injuries. Then it works for them, but the science doesn't show it does. So um, I don't know if you've come across Dr. Tommy Wood. He's an English guy. He's uh, based over in Seattle. He he speaks a lot on nutrition. He was work, working working for a company called um, Nutrition Balance Thrive, and he his his um, day work research is on uh, TBIs in um, in infants. Uh, Tommy's great. He's he's from the UK. Uh, he's domiciled himself in in um, in Washington State now, but he talks about nutrition. And you know, somebody said to him, well, "What's your philosophy, Tommy?" And he said, "Well, 
the thing is, I, I like to be re- remain agnostic on this. Um, you know, these, this is what I do myself. But if you say to me, David, I'm working, I'm keto, I'm trying to keep keto. If, if it's followed to its truest form is highly restrictive and it wasn't intended as a weight loss method. It was intended to help people with epilepsy. Oh, uh, it right. Was, it was an epilepsy treatment originally. Right. So, and, and then people realize, well, actually you lose a lot of weight on this. Maybe it'll work as a weight loss thing. And then of course now people go, yeah, I've lost loads of weight on keto, but, but sustaining it in, the long term, I longer than a few months, is incredibly difficult. Most of the people that do are those who've come from a serious medical condition like a heart problem, and so they've got another motive. Sure. But equally, if you say, Tommy was saying, if somebody says to me, keto's working out for me, then, but the evidence doesn't show it, well, how can I argue with that? The evidence does show it. The evidence for N equals one shows it. The, yeah, exactly. In, in, in academics and um, research, institutions have to do a lot of proving for funding. Mm. So what this is what the world doesn't really talk about. So let's 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 kind of go through some myths here. I think this could be a nice mythbuster episode. <laughs> <laughs> One thing in academics is a lot of what the job is behind Harvard and Cambridge and and NYU is to get research grants, funding. To secure funding, you need to publish quote unquote high quality research. Higher quality research is usually big studies that have a lot of participants that are respected in highly peer-reviewed journals. The thing is, it, takes, it gets taken out of context because even in those systems, there are biases. Mm-hmm. And, they, and they're aware of these biases. And the biases might serve the institution. And they, they're even aware. They know how to manipulate some of those. It's part of the game. The thing is, for you and I, we don't care about that. We want to know what works. That's why artificial intelligence to me is so interesting. We're going to get to a point where the academic institutions aren't, it's not going to be as important as the, the machinery and the technology. It's going to be able to tr- kind of or supersede it, I think, eventually. But for you and I, N equals one is all that matters. Mm-hmm. Because we don't care what the, we call it an RCT, a randomized control trial. If we did an RCT of Gatorade post-workout to figure out if that is the best way to replenish electrolytes. But for you, it just doesn't work that way. The research really does not matter. It doesn't matter one bit. So if you have evidence that it Mm -hmm. does work for you, that is more powerful than any study. And I think we've lost that. We've lost... now. It's good to have generalizations, but we've, we, we need to find the balance there. And I think we're a little bit in disarray where it's either I need to see what's sexy on Instagram or I need to see the empirical mm-hmm. data. Why not just help people better understand how to become what I call open-minded skeptics? Because that's what I consider myself, an open-minded skeptic. I get accused of, um, by, from some quarters and I guess that's what happens when you put your head above the parapet and be opinionated and have your own podcast, but <laughs> I'm getting old enough now where it doesn't really matter. Um, of of take trying things and trying gimmicks and trying different things too quickly. And I'm, my argument in response to that is, well, so if I'm putting myself out there as this trusted authority and somebody says to me, there's no need to try constant glucose monitors, for instance, because you only need that if you're a diabetic and you've got something wrong with your insulin. Well, 
But th- these are new products that are coming on the market. Abbott and Dexcom are introducing them, and they're now targeting athletes so that they can control their blood sugar and understand what's happening. So as a coach, I get asked by people, what happens when I wear a constant glucose monitor? Should I be using it to improve my performance? Now, I could point them at the research, which they could read then, and then they'd have to decipher what the actual message was. Or I could do my own experiment by wearing one myself and see what happens for a couple of months and then say, well, when I wore one, actually, it's true. If, unless there's something wrong with your um, insulin sensitivity and your pancreas, then you won't, know, you won't find out anything new. Or actually, what I did discover was red wine doesn't really do anything to my blood sugar. Eating dairy milk chocolate doesn't really spike my blood sugar. Eating a banana gives it a massive high. But my friend over there, he eats a banana and nothing happens to him. So now we know that we're, we're um, you know, there's individual responses to certain foods. Not everybody has blood sugar spikes because they eat chocolate and sugar. There's a lot of interesting things that you said there, Simon. So uh, one thing that, that hits me there is that you took curiosity upon yourself to investigate something for, for, and you took ownership. You wanted to see for yourself. I don't think enough of us take that leap because we've been taught that, well, first your doctor probably needs to clear it. I mean, we're talking about a glucose monitor. I mean, it's not that unsafe if you're, I don't know how you're, you know, you're measuring it, but you know, if the risk is low, I think that there's times where you just can see for yourself instead of this whole mentality of, I need to be uh, a licensed professional. However, here's the other side to it. It gets taken out of context uh-huh. because then to your point before on social media, we, we almost feel like we have to label it. And I now, I have to be an expert. And now, you know, I, I'm going to be an authority on this rather than just bring a curiosity into it. Oh, let me see. It sounds like the way you just, just described that story, it seemed like a very authentic kind of curiosity that you just used. And I think that's what we got away from a little bit, I think, especially recently, like how many people are, sh- are sharing their fails? Well, that's, that's, that's the other thing that, that I think if you are going to be, um, you are going to be trying to help people and educate people is you've got you, the authenticity and integrity comes from not only sharing your successes, but also saying, do you know what? I tried this and it went horribly wrong. For me, I tried low carb, high fat. I actually thought it was a great philosophy. It was something that they talked about in the book, Primal Endurance. Um, And what I realized was that for me particularly, a super low carbohydrate approach isn't probably the best way. And I'd written, I'd written loads of blog posts about this and I got into some heated debates with people. And in the end, I came to the point that, you know, I can cycle my carbohydrates at times of high endurance work and high volume work or, or training sessions at high intensity i need more carbohydrates but what it has done it's alerted me to the fact that perhaps i was consuming far too many carbohydrates from a processed source so i've cut out a lot of bread i've cut out a lot of pasta and rice now and i'm much more nuanced and and thoughtful about the carbohydrates that i do eat so actually i've, you got I've more sort out of that alone you i've gone yes so i've gone from one extreme to that extreme and now i've, I've sort of landed somewhere in the middle and I would say that that experiment in itself has led to um, a stabilizing of blood sugar and moods and sleep and a whole lot of other things. And and if I'd been wearing a constant glucose monitor during that time, I may just have had the data to back up, back all that up as well. One of my patients did something unbelievable. He invented something called a split liver transplant. Wow. He 
he wasn't an American doctor. He was uh, outside of the country and there's different legalities and ways that they can experiment with things there. And he discovered that you can take part of the liver and you can give it to a child and you can give part of the liver to an adult. That is a curiosity. That is an experimental curiosity that led to things like the discovery of the light bulb, the, the wheel. And we now, we, we started entering a period, Simon, I feel like where we wanted the, the digital course or the academic program to lay it out for us, spit us out as a physio, and I know how to treat my patient and I know what to do. And I went through this process myself with curiosity and it's quite scary listening to that curiosity. Like your, your realizations you made about your different diets with carbohydrates, it's kind of interesting, right? Because you could have gone to the best nutritionist in the world, but would you have learned the nuance there like you, you, you phrased it? No. So what's more valuable? Being on the right carb diet that might lead to a performance metric or learning about it and making that realization. The same thing for this doctor I told you about. He never would have saved as many lives as he has if he didn't just bring in some curiosity outside the box. Mm. And that's really becoming my catharsis or my, uh, my thesis. I should, that's, that was the wrong word. But my thesis really essentially is now how our story can kind of outshine even our title. Our story is really where the, the, the secret sauce is, being curious and taking our story to explore. And that's kind of how I've gone from a physio to some podcasting dude. <laughs> well, let's, let's talk about that. And so you, you, you had your gene job, you were working at the Cardinals, you, you left that. Um, and then you talked about going to California, you talked about moving into the sort of like the, the headspace, if you like, into the mental side of things, because that was overlooked. So um, did, did that mean that you had to go back to college then and study to be a, um, a psychologist? And, and what sort of psychology did you study? Yeah. So for me, I'll just share the quick little moment. So I was working with an athlete and I was a psych major undergrad. I was working with an athlete and he was sitting on the table and I was looking at him, kind of noticed and felt some serious amount of of pain, mental anguish. And I consider mm -hmm. myself kind of intuitive, intuitive empath. And instead of me kind of taking him in the training room office and talking to him, I kind of just glossed over, try to make light of the situation. Anyway, ended up being, after he got out of the rehab group, we found out he, he unsuccessfully attempted suicide. And I was quite, I was really upset with myself because I didn't miss feeling it, but I missed acting on it. And I, I could have done more. And maybe it wouldn't have stopped him from doing anything. Maybe he wouldn't have shared anything, but maybe it would have. And it was that point forward where I started to realize I, I need to pay more attention to this whole mental it was really an identity crisis I saw the player go through. Mm -hmm. And I, I guess I was feeling a little bit of my own identity crisis, like we're talking about. So not, being, not having a graduate degree in psychology, I started thinking about, well, how can I apply all of this? So the Association of Applied Sports Psychology has a certification called a Certified Mental Performance Consultant. So I started working towards that. And it requires a lot of mentoring hours, which I actually just recently completed. So instead of me going back to get a PhD after getting my doctorate in physical therapy, I didn't really think that was the right path because actually I was very disenchanted by the academic process. And so I've, I've worked on 
on obtaining my CMPC. Hopefully, going to take that examination by the end of this summer or this fall. Um, but yeah, for me, it's it's more on the side of the experience that both professionals go through and the athlete goes through at, at injury. So it's not really treating depression or anxiety. It's really using an injury as a time and a segue into helping the individual better other parts of their life and taking some of those mental skills that they use for the injury and taking them outward so that they can grow, especially when sport usually comes to an end at some point, at least at a competitive professional level uh, for, for everybody. So, so it's almost like, like uh, part life coaching in there as well then. Yeah. 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 You're not the first one to kind of to say, yeah. Yeah, so, so yeah, I've been accused of being a life coach once or twice. And I guess it's more on the side of, it really is more on the side of, of overall growth. And, and uh, yeah. I'm not sure accused is the right thing. That makes it sound like you've, you've committed some sort of offense. I mean, it's, um, I don't think there's anything wrong with being a life coach. I think perhaps the term's overused. It's become a bit too common, right. hasn't it? And, uh, you know, I, I, I sense that a lot of the work that I'm doing Judged. now, Judged, yeah. A lot of the work I'm doing now um, probably matches yours. I, I, as a triathlon coach, people come to me because they have a triathlon goal. Mostly people wanting to do Ironman races, and that's a huge physical undertaking, but it requires also skills in time management. And there's a large mental part of that as well. You know, can I do the training? Um, It's almost... It's almost a given that at some point along the way, those people are going to get injured because their body, they're going to push the body until it breaks. And then there's that whole anxiety, you know, upset and and all the other stuff. But again, um, what most coaches that have worked with athletes like this for a long time will come to recognize is that the ones who do the best are the ones who have a balanced life. They have a balanced outlook on life. They've got quite good resilience. Um, did a podcast with my brother the other day when we talked about self-compassion and about sharing vulnerability, which we talked about earlier, um, about being honest, about uh, about being um, kind to yourself, um, things we would easily do for lots of other people, but very rarely do we do for ourselves and stop punishing ourselves for doing things and, and using shame as a way of motivating ourselves. And that's a soft subject that most people will ignore and go, yeah, I don't need any of that sort of stuff. I just need to get on with it, you know, hammer the, hammer away, you know, no pain, no gain, go hard or go home, all of that sort of stuff. But it doesn't work. And so the, the, the and I guess when you're treating people with injury, it, the people who respond best are the people who have a balanced outlook on life, aren't hard on themselves, are sleeping well, have good nutrition, um, have good social relationships and have harmony in their lives. Yeah, there's there's a trait that I I felt that was related to their their outcomes, and I I noticed that the trajectory went one of two ways at the professional level. After a major injury, the career usually would fizzle out majority of the time. Actually, in in the less uh, the less uh, probable chance that they actually went on to do better and went to the next point of their career, which did actually happen sometimes after injury. I rarely saw the player go to status quo after a major injury. And I asked myself, what do I think the difference is? And I did not think that it was a physical quality. I felt that it was related to, a, as cliche as this might sound to some, is a growth mindset, psychological flexibility. 
And I think when you talk about balance, I, I don't know where I stand fully on balance. I don't know if I think it might be a little bit, balance is, uh, is maybe like filling a, a, a ghost stomach a little bit. It's very tough to, 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 to have permanent balance. Um, I, I, go ahead. I, I was, I was going to say, I, I agree with you there. And um, a previous podcast guest took me up on this and said, I don't believe in balance because I don't think you can achieve it. But I think that if I stand on one leg on a tightrope, I can stand there for a bit, but if the wind blows, I have to, I have yes. to adjust, right? So for me, balance is trying to get into a sweet spot. It's not a point, it's a sweet spot. Yes. It's like those little games that you get where you have to get all the balls into the center of the maze and you get one in, but as you're trying to get the others in, the yeah. other one goes out and eventually yeah. you get them in there, but then you've got to, you've got to keep things, keep moving around. And your job then is to try and keep them all in the same point. Have you read The Alchemist? I haven't, but somebody else I know is just reading that. The, the, there's, a, there's a line in the, I don't know why this stands out for me, but he talks about going to this party and he's walking inside this like castle-like home. And he said, he basically is making the, the point that your job is to walk through this place that you're seeing all this amazing stuff, this art on the walls and, and, and lavishness. And you're holding, I think he was holding like a glass or something. And the job was to enjoy, take it all in, but don't let whatever was in that glass spill. So I agree with what you're saying. There is, at the end of the day, you're, you're either going to burn out, right? Or, or you're not. And if you want to have uh, durability, then you're absolutely right. You have to conserve at some point. So I yeah. totally... I totally and, agree to that. And it's, you know, and it's being mindful that you have to adjust, but, but, but being mindful enough to know that you have to adjust. And I think that's the thing is a lot of people get out of balance because they lose sight of the fact that they're drifting off target. So um, back to uh, a lot of the people I've worked with, Iron Man is something that, that takes up an awful lot of time. And so you can right. see people getting immersed in this and they're focused <laughs> on the training, but then they, for, they take their eye off the ball at work. And so colleagues start to get a little frustrated that they're not pulling their weight or they forget to, they forget to say goodnight to their children or they're up early in the morning because they need to get to the pool. And so they're, they're drifting to the state where their partner is taking on all the load, and, but they're not mindful of that. And so um, somebody who has what I call balance in their life or has harmony is, is mindful of that harmony. and understanding and saying, okay, well, look, this is going to be for a short time, but we'll repay it or I need to take Sundays off because that's family day. And so uh, for me, that's... Yeah. That's where you can achieve balance, but in order to stay balanced, you have to you have to be very thoughtful. I think you just said it. You know, I was working for the Cardinals. I, I lacked balance. I was working from you know six seven a.m. ten p.m. sometimes, and I felt like I didn't really have much of it. So I think, but what you just said is is the key. I think seeing the big picture, being able to kind of somehow mindfully keep that at the forefront, seems to be. I think what we what is very important, and that's important when you're injured. It's important when you're changing careers to be able to 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 keep that whole frame and not get too tunnel vision of if it's your elbow that's injured or if it's your knee, and you're just so globally focused on that. That can be just as counterproductive as, as anything as not treating as not doing anything at all. So. I, I can remember once my surprise at, at, at listening to somebody who had a bad back, um, which was quite, which was a chronic problem, and the doctors diagnosing that it was down to stress, 
And I'm thinking, well, the bad back's a physical thing. It's a pain. It manifests itself there. There must be something wrong with the spine or the core. And the doc said, no, you're stressed out. You're too tense. And that's causing all of this tightness in your back. And, you know, um, and reading more about this over time and understanding how a lot of injuries down to a mental state. Now, in, you, in your book, and, and again, in the podcast, I've listened to you speak about um, how people respond to injury and I, I've been through my fair share of injuries and I'm pragmatic about it now and I understand that you know I mean you can see this collarbone's a little wonky here mm. so that was in training for an Ironman and it happened six months before and it's like okay so there I am I'm in the emergency room I'm, I've had some gas and, and air and I'm a little bit out of my head and I'm thinking how am I ever going to ride my bike again if I can't even go down a gentle hill without falling off and then the next day it was like right so my rehab is my training now let's have a a 10 step process to get back to where I can actually train. Mm-hmm. But that, but, 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 you know, that happened when I was in my, uh, um, when I was in my late forties, uh, many years before that, I would have just been, woe is me. This is a disaster. And then, well, I've been injured now for six weeks and I've still got this Achilles problem. I don't seem to be getting any better. What's the matter? You know, uh, getting frustrated. Um, you talk about, and I've not, I've never heard this before. You talk about, uh, a phrase which is very topical right now thought viruses and thought vaccines so i'd like would you yeah. would you care to explain both of those for me please and sort of how they relate to the the the, um, the situations i've just explained yeah sure simon so first the credit's not for me uh david butler and lormir mosley two aussies they wrote a book titled explain pain part of the noi group an amazing book um another early author in this space is Dr. Sarno, who talked a lot about kind of healing your your back pain through your own kind of empowerment, many of which are stress management techniques and, and things of that nature. So I was inspired by these by these works. And so Lorimer and and David Butler, they talk about these thought viruses. So a thought virus is something like my back is never going to get better. Or after you, you explained the thought virus, actually, after your collarbone injury, was it a clavicle fracture or was it a uh, AC yeah. joint separation? No, no, clavicle, clavicle fracture. Yeah. yeah. In, in yeah. three bits. I see. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and no surgery. Yeah. No. So your first, you know, your first, what you said there is I'm never going to be able to even do a simple bike ride again. That was a total thought virus. So you, you, your, your prefrontal cortex, your higher brain started going into the direction of figuring out your future, started doing future tripping. The hind brain, the deep part of your brain, the amygdala and the limbic system were telling you, Simon, you're in fucking, excuse me, I don't know if I can curse, but you're, in, done now. <laughs> you're, in, you're in a lot of pain and you are going to, uh, you need to do something about that pain. It's not good, man. You're in a lot of pain. So there's this dance that occurs between these parts of the brain. Now, the doctor that told your friend, I think you said it was your friend, well, the stress is causing your back pain was very, uh, a very barbaric explanation of it in, in our understanding even now. But basically, first we need to understand that acute and chronic pain actually follow different mechanisms. Uh-huh. So the whole adage of we use 10% of our brain is actually antiquated. 90% of our brain is the, the glia or it's supportive cells and structures in our, in our brain. 10% of our brain are the neurons and the neuronal structures. And so we actually started to discover 
or they discovered, I had nothing to do with it, that the 90% of our brain that's the glia is actually modulating a lot of our pain response. Uh So in a nutshell, acute pain, like you stub your toe, it hurts, you know why it hurts, very simple to understand, you know it's going to get better, and you don't really hear too many people complaining of, you know, stubbing their toe a few days after it happens, very rarely. A, A chronic pain is very different. Chronic pain can actually create a loop and a pathway in your brain that takes into account memory, it takes into account the deeper emotional state you're in, and it can become almost like a habit loop. And this is why I talk about the problem is we have this pervasive mentality, at least here in the States, that we want to fix pain. I know it's outside of the States too. And by feeding a chronic pain, telling it that you have the answer for it and that it's going to address it somehow is actually feeding that. So the, the just much like quitting drinking or smoking or whatever bad habits you want to quit, we know that one of the worst things that you can do is, or not the worst, but it's not that effective to just avoid it. It usually doesn't uh, last that long. So the same thing with pain. When we try and just deny the existence of it and be mentally tough and David Goggins it, it doesn't work that great. When we try and fix it, especially when it's chronic in nature, it, it doesn't do a great job either because the pain that you're feeling in your collarbone, yes, your brain is mapping it there in your collarbone, but your nervous system is what's feeling that and perceiving that pain. So it's, it's quite complicated. And if we deny the, the interplay there of both the physical and the mental or even separate it, then we're, we're missing the boat. So a thought virus is essentially that, that negative predictive thought about what's going to happen in the future and it can create anxiety, worry. And a thought vaccine, I conveniently called it that right before the pandemic, strangely enough, on a podcast. I have proof that it was before. <laughs> and a thought vaccine is essentially an affirmative statement. I am healing. I mean, we know your bone's going to grow, even if it looks like that, one on top of the other. It did. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I see it. And you're still bike riding, I'd imagine. I, well, and, I'm, I'm, and I'm back. The thing is as well, the reason I didn't have surgery on it is because the surgeon who I saw immediately after, whose name was Mr. Lim, ironically, <laughs> um, was, a, was a shoulder specialist. And he said, um, because it's right in the middle there, I don't think a plate will be good if you want to swim, if you want to have good overhead function. Um, most cyclists was right. Well, most cyclists, he said, have plates, but they don't need to have good range of movement overhead. And so uh, he said, but if you don't have surgery, it'll just look a bit ugly. Um, yeah, I've rehabbed but, some of the plates. They're gnarly, and yeah. they can they can limit range of motion. They, well, they can limit quite yeah. a bit, actually. Yeah. A friend, a female friend of mine, had a similar accident to me and had to have the plate removed. Um, I think, she, and I think she was in Europe, and so that's a commonplace thing for them to re, to um, operate with a plate there. But it was it was too close to the surface; it was catching on the skin; it was really uncomfortable. So then she had to have another operation to replace it. But he also told me because because the bone was broken into three, and so the bit in the middle had all the pectoral muscles still on it, which meant it had blood supply. In order to get it back into the middle to the bone that was connected to my sternum and the other one that was connected to my, you know, the the AC end um, of my shoulder, it, it would have to strip off all the muscles, so therefore it wouldn't have any blood supply. So it'd be in the middle of two bones with titanium screws, which inhibit blood supply. And so he said, "You'll it'll be much longer before you can swim." 
how do you get full function back if you do at all? And so just you'd be better off if you can live with that. It'll sort itself out. So at that point as well, having had that conversation with somebody who gave me full confidence that it would fix itself, uh, uh, to your oh. point there, that was almost like his th- that thought Therapy. vaccine. And I felt so much more confident that if I followed his advice and wasn't silly, I would actually get back to where I wanted to be. And I did. Yeah, you, you know... <laughs> Sometimes I, I think about that when he walked out of the room, if he had any self-talk and he said to himself, I hope I'm right. <laughs> but, well, but that's great. That's great. And, and a lot of, t- I learned this from a hypnotist, strangely enough, one of my patients, he was out there and he said, you know what the first thing you tell somebody is after an accident victim? And I've had to respond to some, he goes, the first thing you tell them is everything, the worst is over. The worst part is over. And it's true. When you hear, I, I remember when I used to go to my pediatrician, he used to tell me, you're not going to get a shot today. That was, that was the first thing I'd ask him. And he'd always give me one, but I felt better. The second he told me, oh, you're not getting a shot. That's when the shot would go in. So it's, it's it, yeah, you're absolutely right. Now it's using that on yourself with that level of assurance. Like you felt, it wasn't that you just heard him say that. He wasn't shaking probably. He was, he looked you in the eye and he told you, I think this is going to do quite well on its own and we're not going to need to do any surgery. If you can assure yourself of that, believe it or not, you can have quite a good outcome. Now, pain is real. Pain sucks. Physical pain, I'm not trying to motivate motivationalists speak motivationally to people in pain and tell, tell them that that's not your problem. That's not really what this is about. What it's about is by feeding that pain, Advil, more surgery, physical therapy, physiotherapy, the latest and greatest you saw on Instagram might be contributing to the problem. If you start to shift some of those thoughts, it might decrease the volume of that pain. It mm-hmm. might st- stop the catastrophization that we call that can occur there. And I I think that can save us a lot of money, heartache, pain in and of itself. So that's the angle I'm coming from because I'm very in tune with physical problems can suck and we don't want them. One thing that I've experienced myself again and and with athletes is let's say you get an Achilles problem or you've had a calf injury. Um, Mm -hmm. And obviously, if you're a runner, you, it's difficult to run effectively with, with an Achilles problem. So you stop in running. Um, you have some treatment. It takes a long time to heal. But then you start running again, and you, can, you think, almost like ghost pains, you think you can feel some tightness yeah. or some pain around that. Now, ha- again, how much of that is mental? How much is physical? And because I've, I know I've experienced this myself when I go out and I think about the injury and I'm thinking I don't want to get injured again and of course we know that the the most likely place for you to get your next injury is where your last one was because it's the you know it's the weak link but then you do something without thinking and that almost gives you the confidence boost that oh actually there is no problem there yeah I once used the statement our mind gets in the way of our body sometimes and actually a psychologist and I were talking about this. So Lorimer, who, Lorimer Mosley, who wrote Explain Pain, his classic, he's an Aussie, he's very entertaining, and he tours the world talking about a lot of these concepts that I've now kind of taken into my own practice, and, and I guess I'm growing it in a different capacity than they have. He talks about he was in the bush. They, they call it the bush, I guess, in Australia. Mm-hmm. And he was walking around the bush, and he was just going about his business. And I think eventually he, he turned around. And he's like, oh, hmm, 
that was weird. So I felt a little something. And a few minutes, I'll, I'll uh, make it abbreviated. It quickly, you know, some time goes by. He's on the floor and he's uh, starting to pass out. And he's taken to the hospital and he finds out that he was bitten by a really poisonous snake. Well, he luckily is okay, changes the course of how he's going to treat patients, I guess, the rest of his career, but he's back in the bush. He's in that same situation and he feels something bite him and he jumps up into the air, you know, does a 50 foot vertical. And of course, it's just a thorn bush Uh and there was no threat at all. He almost lost his life to a a deadly snake bite, barely felt anything. Actually, a lot of Achilles injuries, people think that somebody kicked him and it's not even that painful initially. So the point is, pain in and of itself is not a perfect indicator of threat. Mm -hmm. So you asked the question very specifically, uh, is it mental? Is it physical? There's no separation. Pain in and of itself is totally a nervous system related thing. It could be a reflex. Like when you touch the hot stove, it doesn't even have to go up to your, the, the higher parts of your brain. But um, yeah, so it's, it, you can't separate the two. Now, can we detect levels of threat? Well, sure. If you're an endurance athlete and you have a lot of experience and you know yourself, you have a lot of data points you collected, then you sometimes have a sense of that. However, you have to be mindful of the fact that the rest of your brain influences those data points. So it's convoluted when you just look at it from a physical sense. So people that are very logic, logical and, you know, very, uh, like if I had a computer science type of uh, person come in with an injury, they want everything to be very didactic. Mm. They struggle a lot of times. They, they overanalyze. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that, that well, let's talk specifically then for, for our listeners who are um, mostly endurance athletes. Um, they're going to pick up injuries. Most of them are chronic. So, you know, when you ride a bike, there's a pretty good chance you can crash. And so you get an impact injury of some sort. You know, I've had friends who've broken elbows, fractured hips, broken collarbones, uh, dislocate collarbones. But by far the majority of injuries that endurance athletes get uh, are from overuse. And they're obviously going to have to stop training for a certain period of time. Um, most of the most of the triathlon related injuries are running injuries as well, which means they can't do any running. But if somebody's recovering from an injury, does your evidence show that those people who have a strong mental approach and a positive mental approach tend to recover quicker yeah, from so- injuries? What I felt was it wasn't that they necessarily were more positive, but there was a flexibility, a psychological flexibility I noticed in a gro- that growth mindset, which basically is when you know you're making lemonade out of your lemons, right? You know, you, huh? you're, so when life hands you lemons, you make lemonade. So it's essentially having that perspective. It's not that you deny the existence of pain. It's not that you're overly because what can happen is if you're overly overly optimistic. Uh-huh it can create the same problem of more injuries and you're the, you're the injury-prone endurance athlete. So it's very simply, the more mindful, the more, you know, I always noticed the patients that were easiest to work with were always like the calm, really laid back person, right? Mm-hmm. Like you always wanted him or her to come in. Because it was just like, you'd have a conversation. They'd be like, yeah, can you just, uh, can you, 
show me that one exercise again. I've been doing that, but I just, you know, like very easy. I think that's really the, the holy grail of it, having that inner calm. So it's, it's being able to be injured, be in pain, be in chronic pain. And like you were saying before, having that balance approach where it's like, well, okay, I'm going to manage my physical load. I'm going to decrease my mileage. I'm going to do a few exercises. I know that's not going to fix it. I'm, I'm kind of walking people through like the philosophy. And yeah, maybe I'll work with the manual therapist once a month. Let's get a little bit of that in. It's going to, you know, it's going to get better slowly. I, mm-hmm. I know I'm going to heal. This is the type of person that does really well. The bad, the bad person, the bad, the bad, the bad outcome. Oh, okay. I've had this before. I don't know how this is going to go. I better get a second opinion. And you know, I was, I've read about the injection. Um, maybe we'll do the injection. And then I got to make sure I, I watched that YouTube video of doing the banded exercise. I don't know if I'm doing that quite right. And yeah, maybe I'll try some CBD. Okay. That's most people, by the way. So That's too full on. You're talking about people who are too full on with it versus the laid back approach. Yeah, yeah. So, so if you're if you're falling into the the latter of what I just said there, trying to overfix and overdo, and I'm, I hate to say it, but a lot of the people listening are going to fall into that category because naturally we're curious, hmm. but also worry and curiosity can go hand in hand, right? Curiosity is not necessarily worry though. Curiosity is like, hmm, I wonder why. I don't get better right away with that, but not really focusing too much on the why, just like letting your mind be curious. So those are the people that I tend to, to see do worse and catastrophize. The people that get better are the ones that are able to find that inner calm. I've heard you talk about self-determination theory. So that's something that psychologists will be familiar with. Uh, what place does it play in the rehab from injury then? People don't want to do their exercises, Simon. <laughs> so right. I was quite interested in this whole topic and this, this whole idea, actually, for myself. And I'm sure you've kind of gone through this. You ever wonder why you're so motivated? Like, did you ever just take, I mean, maybe you know, but for me, I went through a little bit of a period where I was like, why am I so motivated? Is it because I, I just love the movie Rudy growing up? And I, 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 is it really just I grew up this way environmentally? So intrinsic motivation, just simply put, there's uh, self-determination theories based off of intrinsic motivation and uh-huh. the three elements of intrinsic motivation being competency, social support, and autonomy. So in physical therapy, a lot of people, they come back, they see us, we ask them, did you do your exercises? Either they lie and we, we see their eyes and we know they're lying or they... Um, they're not doing it. And they're like, ah, I just, I can't seem to come around and do my the homework or whatever you want to call it. And I wondered why that was. And I thought as physical therapists, we were very vindictive of, you're not going to get better <laughs> if you don't do your work. You need to do what I'm telling you. Yep. And we, we were really like, I feel like on the lowest, you know, the Darwin lowest totem pole of medical practitioners, mm-hmm. we were just very much bastardizing our, our, our patients there like that. And I felt like that was off. And so, the piece that we miss, we do a good job of social support. Yeah, we cheerlead. We, we say you can do this. Competency or building confidence, we give you steps, do A, then B, then C. Um, and, and we encourage, again, part of the social support and competency. Autonomy. Hmm. How many times do you go see the PT and they say you can do the band exercise or you can do it with the weight? Maybe a few times, but most of us, 
we come in and we say, okay, well, this is what you do and this is what works for me in the past and this is what I want you to do. What if the person doesn't like that? What if that doesn't work for their life? So uh, for, 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 for our clients and our patients to be more intrinsically motivated, we must integrate this into the fabric of their life and really identify ways to allow them to take the reins. I really believe in being behind people, not not being in front of them as a leader. So when I have a patient or a client or an athlete, it's really about asking them the questions. So you talk about you know self-determination theory, motivational interviewing. Mm-hmm. Why are you not doing it? Uh, well, they start talking about their busy, hectic schedule. How's that making, you know, how, well, are you, how are you doing? Are you sleeping? And you start, it takes you in a direction, as you know, as a coach, I don't have to tell you, but the point for your listeners to know is that if you're working with somebody that's not addressing your motivation or helping you address it, mm-hmm. then you're probably never going to do the program. So stop asking for it. It's, it's very similar to the approach we take in nutrition coaching as well. Right. It's motivation interviewing, finding out the whys and the whats, asking more questions, listening, trying to pick up clues, you know, trying to get people to come up with their own answers to things. That's it. And, um, but, but you're right. I mean, my, my ex-wife was a physiotherapist, so I had, I had my personal training clinic in, um, in the same building, and I'd, I'd see people come in, and I'd say, oh, how are you doing? I've not seen you for a year or so. What happened? How's your back now? Oh, well, got a bad back again. Oh, what happened then? Did you get injured? Well, stopped doing my exercises. Um, and I, I always think that, you know, we, we used to talk to the cricketers about this. Um, I, I worked with the physio quite closely, so we had a good little team going there. We had, we had full sort of uh, carte blanche from the performance director to keep these players fit. And my, my theory is the, the fitness coach is always, what we want to do is make sure our best players are available for selection. We don't need them to be bench pressing 200 kilos. We don't need them to be running, you know, that we didn't, we, we need them to be making the minimum threshold so that they're available for selection. The best ab- ability is availability. Yeah. And so Scott and I determined that we could get the lads all that, particularly it was the best thing was to educate the young kids coming through in the academy, you know, the 15 and 16 year olds, some of whom are in the England team now. And I, I still got the data from them as 12-year-olds, you know, for the England captain and one of the England players that was there uh, as a 12-year-old. And you could see then that they were the most diligent. And that was probably the reason why they've, they've got the success they have. But right. sure. one, so, so one morning we're in the gym and they do it. All the lads are doing their TheraBand exercises and the wall angels and everything before they, <laughs> before they start throwing and, and batting and running. And one of them comes up and he's 16 and he said, Waddy, what is it? He said, um, do we have to keep doing these band exercises? I haven't been injured for two years. And Scott, <laughs> the physios just stood there open mouth like, well, that's why you haven't been injured for two years. You need to keep doing them. He said, yeah, but what's the point? He said, look, you know, when you go to the dentist, do you just brush your teeth the day before you go to the dentist? So you brush your teeth every morning and every night so you don't have to go to the dentist. He said, the, the, that one. So I don't have to go to the dentist now. Fillings, he said, well, that's exactly what these, these band exercises are like. He said, it's like brushing your teeth and flossing every day, just a couple of minutes here and there, you know. Yeah, it's a, and, the whole um, idea behind arm care is interesting like that. So I, I took it a little bit further and I realized we do a good job at the preventative exercises, what, whatever you want to call them. And I think there's some research that like hamstring programs work, some arm care programs work. There's some things specifically, there's reasons why they work. Like for a throwing athlete, the rotator cuff has imbalances. Yeah. 
So yeah. improving some of those balances can help with durability with the arm. But we don't do a good job at mental mm-hmm. preventative strategies. So how do we help equip the individual that's going to break their collarbone? Now, mm-hmm. now, funny enough, certain people break their collarbone, right? Mm-hmm. Not It's the person like you, very much like you, usually kind of going out there and pushing themselves and, and riding the bike and the door opens by accident or, or, you know, sometimes, sometimes it's not as uh, it's, it's related to something totally different where it's an accident of some sorts and they were just biking for the first time, but there's phenotypes that people follow mm-hmm. and we don't do a good job at teaching somebody when this happens, here's what you might want to employ mentally. This is what pain can feel like. This is what pain might make you feel like emotionally. Mm. We don't do it. We, I mean, mindfulness and meditation. Sure, I I think that's in a renaissance right now, and probably overcomplicated. But really, just simply learning to be mindful and learning that you can apply that when you're in a state of injury. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe just some specific steps that, of course, I, I wrote about in the book. If you can do that before getting injured, I think that's going to be more effective, dare I say, than the rotator cuff band yeah. exercises. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Let's wind up now, David. Um, but we, You've talked about your book. Now, I don't want to give the game away. Um, so I don't want you to recite everything in there and give away all of your secrets. However, I, I wondered if we could do some little teasers for listeners. I heard you talk about the steps and the process steps that you've outlined in your book to, to getting back from injury. So is there four or five steps that we, you can yeah. just give bullet points for that, um, that listeners could employ if, if they, you know, if I'm, I'm pretty sure on the, the law of averages that there'll be somebody yeah. listening to this who's uh, just injured their calf or has got a rotator cuff problem or got a bad back. So the, the, here are the steps that I've kind of laid out. So the first I call time zero being the moment of impact. It mm-hmm. doesn't have to be a physical injury. It could also be the divorce and you're an athlete. It could be uh, anxiety. So that moment is your time zero, your rock bottom. We'll call it that. We label it that. We, we kind of acknowledge it. So the first step is acknowledging the state that you're in. It's taking inventory, getting into your senses a little bit, getting not trying to figure out why. We're just taking inventory. We're getting into our senses. You might want to do a little bit of a self-evaluation mentally and emotionally as well. Like, how do you feel emotionally? Sure. But you're not trying to overanalyze things. You're just trying to take it in, take in the information. And so after we acknowledge the state we're in, we want to take ownership. So now... We're in this point, maybe we had the Achilles, we'll go with that. So you tore your Achilles. Well, you first want to like acknowledge that you're injured and you're not going to go play right now, right? Like you're going to take the time out not to test it more, which is important. A lot of people, <laughs> they worsen yeah. the injury in that state, yeah. right? Yeah. And so the second, the second step is now taking ownership. So usually like we go into our very reptilian side of on the floor and crying or cursing and mm. we want somebody to save us or we don't know what to do. We, we spin out, right? So you want to take ownership, right? So taking ownership can, can start by just really taking owner, ownership of your breath, right? So just really getting into your breath, being mindful there, as simple as that is. And metaphorically taking ownership, getting in the driver's seat, 
So instead of being in the backseat, letting the surgeon, letting the orthopedist, the physio dictate this whole pathway, at some point you have to take, you have to take the driver's seat. And so then the next kind of entirety of the steps is really the vision, intention, and affirmation. So now that you took ownership, where do you want to drive your car? You're in the driver's seat. Well, where, what are you punching into the GPS? So having some sense of a vector, some sense of a direction, a purpose, and, and kind of really utilizing what we talked about before, some of these mental strategies. So that includes the, the thought vaccines to fight those, combat those negative thought viruses. Mm-hmm. And really reprogramming some of your thoughts there. And then the next step is really kind of laying out your action plan for recovery, really having some type of framework for yourself. And I really encourage people to kind of be the ones that take the reins there. Like you have your performance team and you run it by them, but really you Mm. kind of lay it out. Don't just be the one looking for the protocol because the protocol is not individualized. It wasn't created for you. And that's, that's really the early phase of it or even the majority of it, uh, the next steps really, I, I like to take it a little bit further and utilize what you learned from this rehabilitation to carry over into other elements of your life. So if you tore your Achilles and you were somebody that wanted to jump back into playing and you wanted to rush the process, bring some curiosity into your your business life, into your relationship and say, uh-huh. do I tend to feel pretty urgent with things? Do I try and fix my relationship? Like, Bring that awareness into other parts of your life so then now you can detect some habits and some behaviors that are maladaptive. And now instead of just let that come out when you're injured, address it. So this way, next time something happens, you're a little bit more evolved and you grew through the process and you could be somewhat grateful for going through it. Don't mistake that for saying pain is good. I'm not, I'm not saying that in any effect. Pain is scary. So I don't know if you know the name Sebastian Coe. He won double gold medals for, for Great Britain back in the 80s. But he, um, Lord Sebastian Coe, now he was the mastermind of the 2012 Olympics and um, everything. But he said that when he was injured, he learned more about himself because he, he had an analytical mind. But he would go back and look at you know what was happening in my life then. Was, I, was it my training? Was it, was it the fact that I wasn't getting enough sleep? Was it the fact that I was too engaged in some other stuff? Um, and then he would learn, but he, because he he would then use those tactics in the future to uh, to avoid getting injured again. So he, he he made changes that were positive in his lifestyle and his training approach, everything they did um, to minimise those injuries going forward. So I think that that last point you put is is quite important. A lot of people don't learn from that because no doubt you've seen people coming back in having done the same thing again. You know what happened? Oh, same as last time. Yeah, and just you know, just last thing. You might have gone through a bit of an identity crisis, especially for many of your listeners mm-hmm. that have found endurance sports as a an evolved identity. Maybe where mm. I know the the creative of Spartan races, he's he's really interesting. The way his story was, where he kind of was really burnt out, and he was a big time entrepreneur, a businessman, and he got into the uh, endurance world, and that became a new identity for him in some ways. Mm-hmm. And then when you get injured. Now it's like you're patching up already an identity that you're fixing. So I would just say for people that are going through an injury, that identity crisis that you might feel like you don't have your crutch or you don't have your, your, your hobby, 
don't fight that too. Try not to fight that too much and, and let that kind of go through it a little bit because if you allow yourself to go through it, you're, you're less likely to keep chasing your tail. Work through it a little bit. Let yourself be a little uncomfortable with that for a little bit so you can end up making good decisions for yourself and not just repeating cycles and really maybe even grow your identity through it. Yeah, I've, I've seen that in, um, in lots of athletes who've, who've been injured and unable to, to, to do their sport for quite some time because within their sphere of friends, they're known as, you know, this, curse, this person's Ironman Bob or this person's Marathon Mike or this person's <laughs> Swimming Susie. And when they can no longer swim, they feel that, well, that's how everybody knows me. I'm the swimmer. I'm the marathon runner. I'm not that person anymore. Of course, they haven't changed. They just can't do the sport, but in their own head, they have. And that, that adds to their mental problems, doesn't it? Yeah, you could be a badass. You could still be a badass. You can go climb a tall mountain. What I'm saying is not, I'm not trying to soften people up. All I'm saying is like, Maybe you're just a little bit more narrow with where you're a badass mm-hmm. in life. And like to your point, Simon, you can still have that, but it doesn't have to be all you are. That's, that's really it. The book, Elite, Injured to Elite. Injured to Elite. <laughs> to elite. Yeah, Elite to Injured to Elite. It's part two. Um, injured to Elite. Um, where do people get hold of a copy? It's so funny. A lot of people say that elite. I think, you know, I think it's more common that people go many times injured elite. It's so, it's so true. And this is, that's, it's for that too. So anyway, you can go to Amazon, type in injured to elite on Google. You'll find, I was recently on a webinar and they said, well, where do you find Dave? And I said, well, just Google a damn guy. He's, He's out there, so you could find it. But on Amazon Prime, if you want to go that route. Well, well, we can, and you. I think when we spoke, you said that um, listeners could get a taste of your book. They or listeners could listen. To, is there an audible where they can listen to the first chapter or something? Yeah. So I wanted to put this out there for everybody that wanted to hear the the first third of the book. Uh, it's the first five or six chapters. Go to injuredtoelite.com forward slash listen, and you can hear. Section uh, the first part, which is all about the mind. So all about what Simon and I spoke of. S- section two and three, by the way, does go into the physical realm. Very much movement patterns, sleep, nutrition, everything. It covers everything. It's really a cell. It's a comprehensive guide after any type of injury. It's not. A, and that's not. It's not going to tell you exactly what to do for everything, but it's going to teach you how to build your team and get through the process. So, okay. So we're going to put. Um, don't worry if you didn't. Get that full URL there because we'll put it in the show notes below. Um, There'll be a link to David's book if you decide that you want to buy that. Um, We talked about some of that research that was out there. Was it Laura Meyer and David Butler? Um, Laura Meyer Mosley and David Butler with Explain Pain. Great book. Okay. We talked about Sano, so I'll I'll get those from you. I guess you're all over social media, David, like all good entrepreneurs these days. (laughs) Yeah, I I enjoy Instagram, Dave M. Meyer. Uh, D-A-V-E-M-M-E-Y-E-R. I, I love connecting with people on there. If you, if you listen to this show, I'd love to hear from you. I like to send voice notes. Okay. Well, we'll put all of these links and everything else that I can find that, that has some sort of tenuous link to what we talked about in the show notes. So uh, you can expect a flood, of, uh, a flood of messages saying, David, I've got this problem with my ankle. <laughs> I, I'm happy to talk to them. And, you know, I, I just want to kind of cap it with this. I really enjoyed this conversation with you, Simon. I do a few shows a week and sometimes I get caught up in thinking, oh, who's going to buy the book from this or, or follow me on Instagram. But I would just encourage people that are going through rehab or building your business or, or an endurance athlete, 
really try and 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 enjoy some part of that process i feel like i did today and and we spoke in different ways than i have in other shows so i really encourage people just just try and be in the moment with whatever you're going through and enjoy it well me, me too david and you you mentioned something there that i've spoken about with some other guests is it's it's more about the process and the outcome absolutely very Great. Well, life coaching from you and I. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, then let, let's wrap up. David Meyer, thank you so much. Appreciate you being on the show today. It's been a great conversation and uh, best of luck with the book and wherever you go from there. Thank you, Simon. Maybe I'll see you running around here in New York one of these days. Oh, I'm sure you will. Take care, everybody. And thanks, listeners, for being here again. Bye for now. Thank you very much to David for joining me on this week's High Performance Human podcast. You can find links to everything we chatted about in the show notes below. In the next few weeks, we will be launching our very first High Performance Human course. We're currently open for applications for the beta version, which will last for six weeks and with an investment of just £200 per person, which will be significantly below the final cost when the full course is up and running. If you're interested in being part of this exciting development, please email beth at thetriathloncoach.com or look for the link in the show notes. Now that's all for this week and we'll be back in seven days time with another great guest. But for now, stay healthy and stay focused on being a high performance human in every aspect of your life. <laughs>